from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in London, England. On this week's edition, what the blockchain means for sustainability, COP21 hits a tipping point, the rise of green banks, and will socially responsible investing ever pay dividends for sustainability? It's a stock response this week on 350. It's October 7th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, I'm here in London. Senior writer Lauren Hepler is back home in Oakland, California. Hey there, Lauren. Hey there. How's it going with the International Bureau? <laughs> it's going really well. I've been, uh, I had a really uh, good week here in London. I spoke this week at a uh, an event of of media executives, uh, big uh, media companies, um, Thomson Reuters and Elsevier, and lots of uh, sort of B two B publishers, and um, sort of looking at, uh, well, in my case, the the future of sustainability, what that means, and how that might affect their businesses. And conference put on by a company, ironically based in the Bay Area, called Outsell. Which is sort of the go-to um, company for consulting and data and information about publishing. In fact, I was I had a, a fun moment there. I was telling somebody about um, GreenBiz Group, and he said, "Oh, you're sort of the outsell for sustainability." And I said, "Yes, that's 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 good." <laughs> Very nice. It's funny you mentioned that you were talking with media. I was just listening to a couple segments. People are frustrated with the media here for. We've been hearing nonstop about hurricanes, but very little about climate change. Um, there has been a good amount of coverage about the Paris Agreement, though, uh, actually going into effect, which we'll get into in a few minutes. Uh, but busy times, for sure. Yeah, well, here it's uh, it's all Brexit and Trump all the time. That's all anybody wants to talk about, Brexit and Trump, Trump and Brexit. Oh, and you thought and you so were getting away. <laughs> yeah, well, let's not talk about either of those. Let's get into the Week in Review. So this was a big week for COP21 because we, uh, we the, the world, hit the threshold number, I think it was 55% of nations had to sign the COP agreement um, in order for it to take effect. And and that happened. And, and one of the sort of remarkable parts of that, Lauren, is that uh, this uh, was enacted faster. So that was uh, last December, middle of December. So it's, uh, you know, just uh, 10 months. Um, faster than any other UN treaty ever in the history of the United Nations. And uh, I think that's something to be proud of. And I think it um, speaks to the urgency, at least in most countries, uh, about climate change. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd heard that tidbit on the, the relative speed of the process. But yeah, we've seen big countries like the US and China sign on to the Paris Agreement, obviously coming out of the, the COP21 Paris climate talks, uh, where there were a total of 196 countries. So it will be interesting to see how many more sign on. But we had a great piece this week 
from Edward Cameron, who's the partnership who oversees partnership development and research for our friends over at BSR. Um, And he really put it into context in terms of taking a moment to step back and say, okay, the last two years have sort of been about setting up this framework, uh, figuring out who the leaders are going to be, particularly in the policy and business worlds. And the next two years really need to be about sort of uh, putting the the pedal to the metal and getting some tangible results. And I think honor is due, Edward. Uh, he's uh, led the the parade at uh, and the charge at BSR. Uh, BSR is part of an organization called We Mean Business. We've talked about them over the past uh, year or so. Uh, that really you know catalyzed the business community. And, and I don't think anybody worked harder in that effort than, than Edward. Uh, and I think part of what, what he's writing about is, is also a theme that I've seen this week is, okay, we're on, game on. Now, what does the business community do? Uh, uh, there was an email that went out uh, just uh, yesterday, on Thursday, from Cristiano Figueres, who was the, uh, uh, I guess she was the chair of the uh, UN uh Processor that led to COP21, and and she announced the launching of something called Mission 2020, uh, which is an it's it's not an organization, it's a commitment. She writes, it's a commitment to do everything we can, not not only to drive down global emissions, but to do so at the urgent pace and massive scale required by science. And she's uh, uh, encouraging uh, the business community and others to to come together to to do this. So that, so in, in effect, we've sort of now entered, uh, you know. 2.0 of this, uh, we, we've gotten this uh, enacted. It's it's now been ratified. Now the hard work begins. Right, and there's also some rumors that President Obama is eyeing some sort of climate initiative when he leaves office or uh, later this year, early next. Um, but in terms of the business side of the equation, Ed did have some good numbers in in the story we published this week. He said more than 400 companies with revenue in excess of eight trillion dollars um, and investors, more than 200 investors with assets under management above $20 trillion have made a thousand commitments through We Mean Business. And I know I've looked at their website. They have good information online. We're not talking about small scale incremental. These are like 100% renewable energy goals or uh, phasing out waste from your operations. So um, how companies can sort of forge models to do that that could be replicated will be really interesting to watch. Great. I'll look forward to it. Hearing more about that at the BS, BSR conference, which is uh, November, uh, I think, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th in New York. I'll be speaking there, and I'll be looking forward. I'm sure there'll be a lot more on uh, on climate action and, and what we do now that COP21 has been enacted uh, at that event. Uh, so what else is uh, up this week, Lauren? Well, speaking of recent goings-on, our senior writer, Barbara Grady, had a, a thoughtful piece that was a follow-up from our Verge conference a few weeks back in Silicon Valley, where we were looking at the convergence of sustainability and technology. She specifically looked at the Internet of Things, the tech trend we all know and love, and specifically what Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, uh, one of the two companies to result from the, the split of HP, um, what they're doing in the space. So uh, there's a lot of focus on sort of the, the future of energy efficiency, how that's potentially enabled with sort of sensor-laden objects everywhere, uh, communicating, having much better data about how much energy things are using. So sort of manifesting the years-long shift toward connected things. 
Yeah, HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprises, uh, did an event within our event where they brought together, I think it was a panel of eight or nine people. It was, uh, I looked at it and said, wow, that's a, that's a pretty big panel. But they had some great people on there. Uh, uh, John Elkington, who I just saw here this week in London, uh, and Angelina Hickian from Steelcase, and several others. It was uh, uh, run by uh, Globescan. Uh, and uh, looking at a lot of research that had just been done by Globescan uh, around the what we think about uh, sustainability and the potential for the net of things to, to really make a difference. That's, of course, at the heart of, of what Verge has been about. And and um, uh, Barbara's piece uh, covers some of what was there. And I think that uh, somewhere we can we can check that uh, uh, webcast that they did uh, you know live within Verge is available uh, online for viewing as well. It was a pretty interesting conversation. Yeah, one of the things that Barbara goes into a little bit is uh, the element of the labor or the tradespeople that are often in and around utilities and thing uh, like building controls and sort of how technology could augment the jobs they do. So sort of uh, making labor and technology work together to to maximize smooth operations. Um, so I think that'll definitely be one area to watch. The other piece I want to talk about this week is one that by our always provocative editor-at-large, Bob Langer, wrote a piece about socially responsible investing, uh, SRI as it's so known, um, and uh, uh, particularly about an organization that's trying to move the needle from uh, what he call, calls well, it's ESG, which is about environmental, social, and governance issues, which is at the heart of socially responsible investing, to move that uh, from 1.0 to 2.0. The 1.0 was driven by stakeholders. It was about reducing risk. It's a, it was sort of a niche, siloed, peripheral kind of incremental kind of change. Uh, if you look at the uh, you know, amount of money that's invested in socially responsible investing funds. It's twenty-one trillion dollars, which is not, you know, it's not nothing. It's a lot of money, but it's, but it's, uh, it's really it's still a small part of the three hundred and twenty-five trillion. So it's, so it's well under ten percent of the total uh, that's invested in markets. Uh, 2.0 is about value creation. Is how do we use this not just to reduce risk. But it's it driven by industry, not by by uh, activists and stake, other stakeholders, and very much integrated into uh, in, into the work that companies do every day. And it's sort of not an add-on, bolt-on kind of thing. And I think it's it's really provocative, as Bob's pieces often are. Yeah, he he. There's a phrase early on. He says sustainability professionals drink way too much of the SRI Kool Aid. He says, ask your CFO how many sustainability questions they get from mainstream financial managers, and I'll bet the answer is zero. So I think that definitely sort of setting expectations there in terms of this is a field that um, has a ways to go. And it uh, reminds me of another story that our reporter Keith Larson did this week on the emergence of green banks, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, sort of at a similar nascent stage. Um, but it, it definitely seems like especially we've been seeing commitments coming out of like the Goldman Sachs of the world or the Bank of America's um, saying they're willing to dedicate a lot of money towards building out renewable energy in particular. Um, so it seems like there's at least a little bit more willingness to sort of come together and the details of how that will work out. Still, Well, this is a, this. Yeah, but this is a, about something a little bit different, Lauren. This is really about, you know, how do investors drive 
companies who aren't necessarily in the clean energy or sustainability business to to uh, to up their games uh, in terms of you know all the things we talk about energy carbon water toxics etc um, and to and the way that SRI has been uh, treated it's sort of a check the box kind of thing where companies have to go through a bunch of loop uh, hoops to uh, to be considered for SRI funds, but they're things that don't really matter uh, as much to the profits and profitability of the companies. It's not integrated into what companies actually do. And so the, I guess this is a new effort to try and align those things so that the SRI, you know, the 2.0 version is really about um, things that the financial markets talk about and care about. Because as, as you just said, uh, and as Bob quoted in the article, that, you know, for all the work that uh, and we hear this at our Greenbiz Executive Network meetings all the time for all the work that the sustainability executives put into in companies in in satisfying the requests and needs and the forms and everything that the SRI groups put out in order to put them on the screen to, to enable them to be screened into investment portfolios. It actually doesn't change much that companies do. And um, and, and it's, so it's it's just sort of a maybe a little bit of a wasted exercise. And so we'll see if this really does create a, a sea change in how sustainable investing is done. So if you're tuned into the world of technology, you've probably heard something about this concept of blockchain, um, sort of like the Internet of Things a couple of years back. I, it really does seem like this term has just sort of popped up and is now sort of pervading uh, everything, including the realm of sustainability. Our senior writer, Heather Clancy, took a look at the trend and explained what's going on in a story this week called How the Blockchain Will Disrupt Energy Markets. And she joins us now. Hey, Heather, how's it going? Hey, Lauren, I'm great. Thank you very much. Gorgeous okay. to stay here. <laughs> uh, oh, very nice. Yeah, I think we're we're into actual fall weather, which we'll have for like a week in California, but that's why we have it. <laughs> Um, so I, I have to fess up on this one. I'm hearing a lot about blockchain, but I don't totally understand the significance. Uh, can you just break it down for us? What is this technology? So yeah, and I go back and forth myself. It is pretty dense. So you can think of it as the underlying ledger technology under what a technology called Bitcoin. Uh, so many of you will probably have heard of a Bitcoin digital currency. Blockchain is what really uh, secures and facilitates the transaction. So it's a ledger. It, it transfers one Bitcoin from someone's account to another account. Um, and the thing is really interesting, number one, is that it is distributed. So no one really owns it, um, the blockchain, if you will. Th that means there's no point of central control, if you will. I mean, it also gets around the duplication problem that you have when, when digital tr transactions happen. If you think about it, when someone sends you a digital photo, they're really sending you a copy of that photo, that of that image or that music file. 
blockchain lets you transfer an asset, a digital asset from one person to another and actually transfer that asset. You don't end up with all of these multiple copies of things spread out all over the internet. Um, and you don't have the, the problem of, of trying to figure out who quote owns that asset. So it's, it's a really great technology for facilitating transactions that couldn't otherwise be facilitated in a financial marketplace. We'll get into that in a moment, but that that's a sort of, you know, high level explanation of what it is. Yeah, that's interesting. And right off the bat, it sort of makes me think of uh, some of these other accounting systems, if you will, that we hear about in sustainability, um, like, like virtual PPAs and sort of accounting for new energy business models. Um, is that potentially one way we could be going in all of this, like applying blockchain to specific uh, sectors of sustainability? Sure. Yes. The Yes. And as I'm mentioned before, it's a financial mechanism, right? So you could have a contract that maybe you couldn't automate before. The great example, I did a panel at Verge on this topic. I moderated some great speakers who are thinking about this in really extraordinarily interesting ways. And one of the prototypes that we discussed was pretty simple, how to let a solar panel generate renewable energy credits automatically and then transfer those credits where they need to be. So uh, believe it or not, NASDAQ participated in this prototype along with a couple of other companies. Um, IDEO Colab, IDEO Colab um, is doing some cool work in this space. And basically what they set out to prove was whether or not a solar panel, if you hooked up sensors and, and the right software, if you could get that thing to generate a, a rec, right? So to tell you how much it's producing and then to be make that, that rec available for trading, if you will, on a new marketplace. So they, they've been testing examples like that. Um, GE is thinking about it as a way of um, helping enable virtual power plants. That's intriguing. What, what does that mean? So I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> um, but basically, if you think about it, Distributed uh, energy is is what everyone's talking about, right? So I have a microgrid, um, like just say I have put a microgrid at my corporate headquarters. Um, another person in the nearby community has has hooked in solar panels, and as the owners of these assets hook them into the the larger grid, um, it creates a power supply that isn't necessarily generated by a central facility. So right, the whole I whole idea of the distributed grid. But the, the big sticking point has been how do you get, how do you transfer the, the ownership of those, quote, assets, right, of that power that's being generated from one person to another? So, for example, if I want to make my solar generated power available to the grid um, for demand response, how do I do that? It's really hard to do today. And blockchain is being studied and considered as a, as a means of doing this. Again, it, it doesn't have a central point of control. So it's, it, it's really well suited to these sorts of distributed applications. Yeah. So when you're thinking about sort of distributed computing and these sorts of things, um, obviously, you've just got I mean, pretty much every big software company in the game is involved somehow right. with cloud exactly. computing yep. services. So yep. is th is this sort of wide open in terms of companies to watch and interesting projects? Yeah, so very wide open. Um, and I know I'm pronouncing their name wrong, but IDEO Colab um, is really encouraging organizations to to just think out of the box and try little things like like that solar panel thing. I mean, that that's a pretty basic example of what's possible. But unless you mess around with these services, you're not going to know what's possible. 
Google, um, Microsoft, IBM, they all gang fundamental networks, right? So the, what you do need is a network to make these transactions happen. And that's what the, the cloud software companies are, are working on is a way, is a network where companies can experiment and figure this out. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation and pretty much any big bank you name is, is messing around with this stuff. NASDAQ has been, has been experimenting for at least three years. I think the, uh, the, the interesting stat that we're hearing is that about 15% of all banks are going to be dabbling in this by the end of 2017, and that within three years, two-thirds of banks will have actually formal services in place. So I think this thing is going to happen pretty quick. So the time for experimentation is now. Interesting. And while we're in this period of experimentation, I tipped my hat early on. It seems like one issue is sort of education or just like, what the heck is this thing? Yeah, education and, and, and really does remain a stumbling point. And uh, I, that was one big focus of my panel at Verge. Here's some audio and, and here's what how some of the participants described it. One of the problems as a startup as you're selling to large companies is they have to trust you. They have to trust that your systems are going to operate um, you know, if your company gets acquired, they're going to have to trust that the data that's flowing through your networks is something that is secure and private and won't be able to be um, leaked into other into other operators. Um, and as we're deciphering this, this problem, we also were looking at payment, which is uh, if we're going to build a recurring revenue business, how do we prove that devices in the field have been paid for? Um, so it was an engineering challenge. And, and blockchain, you know, is really interesting. Um, for financial institutions in, in value transfer. Um, and it can also be interesting for just security of, of a system and a, a, a ledgering database, which is what it's often referred to as. Um, so we use, the, we use the blockchain in a couple ways. And I think one of the reasons, or a few of the reasons are that it's trustless. So our customers don't have to trust us. They don't have to trust their subcontractors. The regulator doesn't have to trust the company. Um, in the situations in which we're utilizing it, there's uh, a trustless mechanism where people are allowed to cooperate and are multiple stakeholders, um, which is one of the reasons I think energy can, can benefit from it. Um, another reason is that it's, uh, it has longevity and it's immutable. And so the immutability of it means that in 10 years, someone who's looking back at a system can, make, can ensure that the same transaction that was processed has, hasn't been tampered with, that there's, this, that there's reliable proof. Um, and the third reason that it's interesting is because we're working with devices that are often, you know, on tower poles in the Australian outback or in underground mines. Um, we have to ensure that the devices, whenever they're checking to see for their payment, whenever they have a network available, um, that every time the blockchain is updated, the device has access to it. So instead of trying to work with our central servers or work with the company servers where things change all the time, there is consistency of the system. Um, and every version of it is the same. The really cool thing about blockchains is they solve what's called the double spend problem. And the double spend problem is uh, comes up anytime you have something that's digital. So um, if I have you know a photo on my phone um, and I send it to Jonathan, who's here in the audience, um, there's kind of this, this magic, actually, with digital stuff where he has a copy and I still have a copy. It's really easy to make copies of things that are digital. Turns out it's actually really hard to move things that are digital, which means if, to, to ensure that I give Jonathan a photo and that I don't have the photo anymore. Like, that's actually really hard to do with digital technology. Turns out, you know, with physical things, that's really easy. Like, if I hand someone a $20 bill, they have it, I don't have it. 
that kind of happens naturally. So blockchains solve this, that's the so-called double spend problem. They, they solve this handoff problem. Um, and the way they do that is there's a ledger, like kind of a, a, a glorified, sorry Alex, glorified spreadsheet um, that <laughs> keeps track of who, you know, who owns which amount of Bitcoin, at least in the case of the original Bitcoin blockchain. And the way it solves this is that a number of participants, so everyone who's participating in the Bitcoin network or, or blockchain network, has the exact same copy. So everyone knows sort of the state of the world. And then what the blockchain does is it has a very um, cryptography-based, math-based, well-defined mechanism for any one participant in that network to make a change to the ledger to say, add a transaction that sends one Bitcoin from me to Shilby. They add it to the ledger and then they distribute this this updated version to everyone else. And it's it's done in a kind of mathematically rigorous cryptographic way so that there's no way for a person to kind of cheat on that. So they distribute it out and now everyone has an updated copy of that ledger and everyone agrees, okay, so now this transaction took place. That's a pretty radical thing. Like in the past, we've always relied on a trusted organization where I, I send a bank a message, so to speak, and say, hey, make this move money from here to there, I'm trusting the bank to do it um, you know, sort of correctly on my behalf. With blockchains, all of that happens in a decentralized way, distributed across participants. Are there other potential obstacles or facets of the field that you're curious to watch evolve? Yeah, so there's always the security question, right? So there have been um, attacks and there were attacks on, on the ledger technology. How do you break this stuff? People, I'm sure, are going to be um, breaking things. You also need to make sure that the assets do have sensors on them. Um, a company participating in that NASDAQ prototype I mentioned before it was is a company called Filament, and they have a sensor that basically helps generate the uh, the right IDs for, for these things to talk to the blockchain, so that there will be that, so that could cost money, um, right? You have to retrofit these things, if you will, stick the sensors on them. Um, so that's an obstacle, security, so investment, um, you know, and then of course, just generally, maybe the, the idea of centralized control, I'm sure that um, right now the utility model isn't really focused on that. So that will be a, a, an obstacle. Although disruption happens often when people don't expect it, that's what makes it disruptive. So um, who knows? Well, definitely lots to watch in this space. And thank you, Heather Clancy, for breaking it down for us. Stay tuned for more on the blockchain. Thanks, Lauren. While Joel was running around London and I was busy back in the Bay Area, our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel, took a trip to Southern California for this year's Green Build Conference. And luckily, she had a few minutes at the end of the week to join us for a quick call. How's it going, Elsa? Oh, pretty good. How about you? Good, good. So what did you see this week? Well, um, at the LA Convention Center, which is so massive and really not 
green at all on the surface. Um, there was some interesting stuff going on about um, human health and how it's getting easier to prove the ROI for building green, not just for optimizing the usual suspects like energy and water, but for actually enhancing worker productivity. Um, one big sign of this was a pretty interesting study um, it, that showed that workers in LEED certified buildings actually perform better on cognitive tests and sleep better at night. So researchers at Harvard and SUNY Upstate Medical University were backed by United Technologies Corporation. They're sharing early results of the COGFX study, which is its nickname. It found 26% higher scores on cognitive, cognitive tests for workers in LEED certified buildings. And it continues with findings from a study from last year, but this one has a much larger sample size. It's still not huge. They hope to expand potentially at some point, but they looked at 109 humans in 10 buildings across five cities. They wanted to explore what they're calling building nomics or the genomics or bigger picture of what's happening indoors, not just individual factors like lighting, temperature, better air quality, but how all of that comes together to benefit productivity and wellness. And it suggests that green buildings can not only make for better rested, uh, more intelligent employees, but uh, this can serve as your competitive advantage or helping you make the argument for maybe the C-suite for um, maybe enhancing your existing building or investing in a newer one with um, LEED certification. So they, they actually um, put some dollars out there suggesting that productivity benefits amounting to thousands of dollars per worker could come from investing just about $40 on greener features. Um, so, of course, results like this are great for a company like United Technologies, which owns companies including Carrier and Otis Elevator. So results like these help to make the case for their products. Meanwhile, there's a new web-based tool called AutoCase, and this promises to simplify decision-making for architects and other decision-makers in buildings. And in real time, it offers a cost-benefit analysis in a nice web-based interface for factors like carbon emissions, air quality, energy, water efficiency, and more. It even has a TurboTax-like little ticker that shows in dollars and cents the expected net positive value. So um, a company called Impact Infrastructure Build AutoCase, and it's partnering with Autodesk. Um, this will wind up costing about $2,000 per year, um, which they're billing as a much better deal than um, the processes you would currently have to do in a way more complicated fashion, taking months and months for results instead of getting a real-time little dashboard. So AutoCase also takes into account factors like health, worker absenteeism rates, and productivity. So it's all part of the bigger trend that you see um, also with the COGFX study that human health is becoming a bigger deal in the green building world. Some other small signs on the green build show floor, um, there's a new health and wellness section in the green build expo, and it seems like there's a big turnout for sessions like the business case for the well building standard. Well, all kinds of stuff going on, technology, health. Sounds like a, a busy week. Thank you so much, Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel, for giving us the download. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren.
let's switch gears and talk money. Our reporter Keith Larson this week took a look at the world of green banking uh, in a piece called What Does the Green Bank Landscape Look Like? Keith is joining us now from North Carolina. How's it going, Keith? It's pretty good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So walk me through this a little bit. I have to say when I first uh, read the article title, I was like, hmm, I've heard of green bonds and all that, but what exactly is a green bank? Yeah, so they're they're relatively new. Uh, Connecticut was the first state to adopt one back in 2011, or adopt the term green bank. And they're public-private uh, institutions that um, use public and private dollars to encourage uh, clean energy investments, like renewable energy and energy efficiency uh, investments. And they're only in a few states right now, uh, but Connecticut's had the Connecticut's probably the most well known. And so I understand there's some research, people sort of looking at these early models. What do we know so far about the activity that these sorts of banks are undertaking? Uh, well, to be honest, not not that much. I mean, there there's a, one of the problems that the report highlighted is that there's not much data and uh, time to really go off to, to properly evaluate green banks to say whether they've been successful or not successful. But one of the findings is that green banks, um, you know, some of the green banks are encouraging people to invest or offering financing for people to invest in, say, renewable energy, or they're offering people uh, the opportunity to financing opportunities to invest in energy efficiency, but they're not really doing a good job of combining these two areas so that someone can get, um, you know, do all the energy efficiency uh, initiatives in their house and then look at, say, solar energy. Mm-hmm. And so this is a report that was released by the American Council for Ener- for an Energy Efficient Economy, ACE, I think is their acronym. So um, what do we know in terms of, given that the- these are still very early days for this sector, um, where is the potential to sort of add value here? Yeah, I think, I think the potential is really, uh, from talking with one of the authors of the report, is that it is in this uh, combination of combining energy efficiency and renewable energy financing uh, for people. And um, and then another one is, is focusing on energy savings and uh, the way people can, uh, or offering energy savings programs to to uh, people. And, and also focusing maybe more on the, re- or the commercial side rather than the residential side. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we are, we, these aren't super small numbers. You, you report that the Connecticut Green Bank has deployed $281.5 million in funding for 598 projects. So can you talk a little bit about um, sort of where that money comes from and what sort of the public-private dynamic is there? Sure. Well, they, they do get some money from the public and then from, um, from the, through their state legislature normally, and then they're able to, to use that money to leverage private investments uh, into that fund. Um, and so it's able to create, uh, and they're able to do that by buying down interest rates, loan loss reserves, or loan guarantees, and other forms of enhancements. So what exactly is the difference then uh, when we, because we hear a lot about commercial banks like Wells Fargo or even investment banks like Goldman Sachs sort of talking at a high level about how they're going to pour nine and ten figure sums into renewable energy. There was a lot of talk about that around the the Paris Climate Agreement last year. Um, But what's sort of the difference in the way green banks approach efficiency or renewables and the way commercial banks think about these things? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, a lot of the uh, of these projects are being financed by you know, traditional lenders, 
uh, like banks, but green banks have a specific mandate for financing clean energy projects, and they also have a specific mandate to offer financing for low-income and multifamily projects. Uh, so it's you know their objectives are a little bit different, and then they're also um, are able to specialize, and they're more just dealing with some of these uh, small specialized projects um, as for interstate energy efficiency. Uh, rather than a bank, which may not necessarily know how to, how to deal with some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So potentially filling some gaps left by the commercial banks and then also taking on slightly different types of projects. That's interesting. Um, right. I, I was also interested to see that you, you talked a little bit about the state of Hawaii, which we know was, was the first in the U.S. to sort of legislatively mandate a transition to renewable energy. Um, so is there anything that you could glean in the difference between how different states or different green banks are approaching these things? Yeah, I mean, some are just maybe more developed than others. And I mean, that's the way it seems. I mean, Hawaii, Hawaii's Green Bank Infrastructure Authority, uh, according to the report, has only had has only deployed funding for 12 loans so far. And right now, uh, one of the authors of the report, Annie Gilio, said that you know, right now that the number has risen recently and that they've revised some of their product offerings and they're looking at what works for them and and what doesn't work for them. And so right now, um, I, guess, I guess one of the points she was making is that what may work for one you know, state may not work for another state. It makes sense that there would definitely be some trial and error entailed here. Um, I'm curious, though, since you've written about sort of a whole range of sustainable financing, you've written about um, sort of activist shareholders and, and corporate financial disclosures related to sustainability, as well as mechanisms like green bonds. Do you have a sense of just sort of how green banks do or don't dovetail with the other efforts here um, or, or anything else you'd say about sort of the state of, of sustainability and finance? That's a good uh, that's a good point, because Annie Gilio said that, you know, green banks are cool in the toolkit. You know, they're a great way. They're not it's not the end all be all for for offering, uh, you know, financing for encouraging investments in clean energy projects. But it's just one way that uh, is going to help encourage uh, these projects and the opportunities that they have making them of making them available to to customers. Mm-hmm. One mechanism we'll definitely continue to watch along with green bonds companies like Starbucks and Apple starting to wade into that market. So interesting times for sort of the the money men and women in sustainability. But reporter Keith Larson, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find the links to the organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to our podcast director, Soraya Melconian. Contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. And, uh, well, uh, we'll see you back here next week. I'm going to take the week off uh, traveling in Europe. But, uh, Lauren, you'll have, uh, I guess, a surprise mystery co-host. Is that right? That is correct. Stay tuned. Okay. Until then, for all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. Have a great day.